0: You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend.
1: Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. The airlock has been sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. Ah, here we are. Welcome back.
0: Yeah, when you do that voice, I, sometimes I think that I should have like a Sarah McLaughlin track going behind you.
1: Oh, oh, like the one that I used to do for the ASPCA for a while. Yeah, sounds yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. vaguely like she's having an asthma attack while pleading yep. for money for for beagles. In the arms um, of the angels, yeah, that one. Yeah, that one. All yeah. Away from here. Yeah. See, so, so the funny thing is um, when I when I do like. God of all the things to provide a segue. Um, like when I <laughs> when I do a lesson in rhetoric with my students about like forms of persuasion, and we get to like you know ethos, pathos, logos, all that sort of stuff. Um, and we're talking about pathos, the and, like, emotional. The um, yes, them, yeah, like yeah. And, and and Athos and Aramis as well. Um, yeah. and so the when we talk about like the emotional manipulation of pathos, they they sometimes have trouble thinking of an example, and I'm like, you don't watch television that has Like commercials anymore, but you probably have seen it like at your grandma's house and they're like, yeah, we, we, we understand commercials as a, as a vague concept. And I'll be like, so, so when you're at grandma's house and you see like that ad for, for animals and shelters and like, it's always a slow pan camera of them looking sad. And they're like, Oh my God. Yeah. And like, and there's always that really breathy singing in the background, like, and like that whole thing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that I'm like, that's pathos. And they're like, Oh, we hate that. (laughs) (laughs) so um so yeah there we go Hi, Howard.
2: <laughs> that was awesome. That's one of my favorite introductions ever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, they call it a cold open in the world of like Saturday Night Live. So we're just going like extra cold there. So that's from Howard New York. Jones. It's Saturday night. Right. We've got Howard Jones with us. It's so nice to have you, Howard. How are you doing?
2: It's a pleasure to be here. I, I wish I had a beagle that I could be petting right now.
1: <laughs> oh, my grandpa had a particular affection for beagles um, and and unfortunately has sort of passed it on to me. I love all sort of derpy faced hound creatures. Like the more their heads are shaped like bricks, the better. Um, and generally I have a sliding scale of like, I like my, I like my cats smart and I like my dogs very stupid. And like, wow, with beagles, they really deliver. Like, they, <laughs> they mean it. Like they, yeah.
2: I, I I really like uh shepherds and huskies so you oh, know yeah. my dream dog is a shepherd husky mix and we've had a couple now and, and they're just great dogs
1: okay. I hope you live someplace where the weather would not murderize a shepherd or husky because they do need to exist in like deep deep
2: cold <laughs> well it's it's pretty good until July and august
1: and then mm-hmm, there yeah. then
2: there's some trouble but then you know most of the time they're indoor dogs anyway so
1: Northern hemisphere of planet Earth, it seems like these days, everywhere in July and August is just sort of on fire. So, I mean, at that point, if you don't actually have a flaming dog, you're doing fine. (laughs) No worries. Yeah.
0: My dog is in the middle of shedding right now again. So I I, I actually cleaned the entire house, cleaned everything, turned around. I kid you not, I took a fucking picture. Uh, There was a tumbleweed of dog fur. Like moving across the floor, and I'm no, like, no, no, I,
2: I, I gather, yeah, I, I, I it's get just that. Just cleaned, yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, shepherds and huskies both shed constantly. Mm-hmm.
0: And mm-hmm. I have discovered yeah. that border collies do as well. So, yeah.
1: Have you explained <laughs> to Ronan that his timing is very bad because, like, the weather's just going to get. Just hold on, buddy. Just, yeah. just hang on to that stuff. Like, you,
2: yeah.
1: you're gonna, you're gonna want it, in, in yeah. like a month.
0: There, he doesn't care <laughs> if, if it doesn't, if the word, if the sentence doesn't have cookie. In it, he doesn't care.
1: So just say, so just say, "Hey, cookie." Keep like. he wants the cookie. Ah, damn it! <laughs>
0: then
1: he goes to the kitchen. And he's like, "Cookie, cookie." This is why I like dumb dogs. Like, yeah. like I could say literally anything to my dog, and she would be like. <laughs> And so it would just, you know, be completely fine. Might my, my, the punctuation there of what she would be like was useless for the listeners because it was just me looking really big eyed into the camera, and of course that doesn't work <laughs> because we're an audio podcast.
0: <laughs> so, so I am a I am a I'm a horrible horrible friend to Howard in that I have not read his latest book. Uh, and I'm curious, Howard. Uh, in the past, we've talked about sword and sorcery. What segue I'm doing here? We've talked yeah. a lot about sword and sorcery because that—that was that was like your jam. That's where you you lived and breathed and loved so much. Um, but now I'm wondering, like, uh, just just from out of my own curiosity, is there a dog in your book?
2: There, will... <laughs> there, there is not. But uh, I'm working on the third volume right now, and by God, there is. Oh
0: well, there you go. See. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. a good segue. So tell us. About nice
1: job. <laughs> <laughs> you get a cookie. <laughs> it's a good thing you got headphones on too, and that Ronan's outside. Otherwise, yes. just introduced a new layer of chaos into the podcast. <laughs> so okay, so to catch Patrick, who is a bad bad boy, um, who does not in fact get a cookie. And up and all the other listeners who don't know yet uh, let's talk about, talk to us about Lord of a shattered land it just came out in August so it's your new baby
2: yeah that's right it, uh, it dropped from Bain in hardback um, and its sequel is coming in October oh wow and, and the, uh, the the pitch I guess the elevator pitch is uh, so the whole thing has an ancient Mediterranean vibe real sword and sandal kind of thing and I say it's a little bit like the adventures uh, Aragorn would have had if Sauron had won.
1: Mm.
2: I could give you the longer spiel if you want. I, I don't know how much you want to hear. I mean, we're, we're here to hear okay. it. Okay. All right. So here we go.
0: <laughs> this is your, this um, is your opportunity to sell the listeners th- on it. Come
2: this on. is my opportunity. So <laughs> when the Durvan Empire came for the city of Valanus, its people fought block by block, house by house, until most of them fell with sword in hand. Only around a thousand survived to be led away in chains. The Durvans set fire to the temples, They looted the treasuries, they sowed the ground with salt. Their destruction seemed complete, but they'd overlooked one small detail. The greatest Volani general had escaped alive. And now, alone against a vast empire, he has only an aging sword arm, a lifetime of wisdom, and the greatest military mind in the world bent upon a single goal. No matter where his people have been taken, from the furthest outpost of the empire to its rotten heart, he will find them, and he will set them free.
1: Nice. I kind of do wish that we were a video podcast now because then it could be doing like the popcorn eating thing. And it, would be, it would really, it would resonate. So, but I mean, I think in, I'm not just saying that to to be funny. Like, it, like one of the things, and this sort of harkens back to the whole idea of sword and sorcery in and of itself, is that sword and sorcery is kind of what publishing made itself on in the 20th century. And, and in many ways, uh, publishing never left sword and sorcery. Like it's, it's always sustained and it's sustained on that kind of energy on that kind of um, epic and yet contained within um, this, like sort of the very specific bounds of a very specifically envisioned world here. Super exciting.
2: Well, thank you. I, uh, I love, I love the fast pace and the weird world building of uh sword <laughs> and sorcery. And I wanted to, you know, I, I can never stop tapping into that. That's, yeah. That's my jam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, so
0: you could you could totally break my heart here, uh, but I'm going to ask a question anyway. Would you would like are you are you up on The Witcher on Netflix? Do you like it? Do you not like it?
2: I have been not watching much uh, media. You know, I okay. haven't yet seen any Mandalorian. I haven't seen any Witcher, uh, so I'm pretty far behind. The only media right. I've been taking in lately is watching my wife beat monsters on Zelda. So.
1: Which, also sword and sorcery, so, you know. I
2: suppose so, yeah.
1: <laughs> In its own kind of way. I
2: no, but I've, rewind- I've heard good things about The Witcher. Um, mm-hmm. I've also heard mixed things I about succeeding six- seasons, yeah. yeah, but- yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: I, I enjoy The Witcher. I have not finished the, the current season uh, because I don't like things to end. And it is the end of, of Henry Cavill uh, playing Geralt. Uh, but – Yeah, that's just me. That's my brain. It's like, yeah, I I have this weird disconnect with uh, if I'm really, really enjoying something, I don't want it to end. (laughs) So I don't, like I'll put it off as long as possible. Uh, But yeah, it it was getting really, really good. And then I was like, no, I'm getting too close. Stop.
2: (laughs) No, I get that. There's a couple of uh, series. So uh, Donald Westlake wrote this series of uh, heist novels about this master criminal named Parker. And of course. There's only a finite number of them because eventually Donald Westlake died and I was enjoying them so much. And I came to the last one. I must've waited a couple of years before I finally, <laughs> finally cracked it open. Because once you start there, there's slim novels. I, I doubt that they're more than 60,000 words. Once you crack one open, uh, the hook and the pacing is just so fast or impossible to put down. So I, I just delayed it as long as possible. So there'd be one, one final Parker novel for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I'm in a, I'm in a gaming group that meets, you know, every two weeks, which is hilarious because no gaming group actually meets every two weeks. Something always (laughs) happens. Um, But uh, there's, there's a, there's a guy in the group who uh, is, you know, has read a certain series and I have also read a certain series and the the game master has read a certain series, but uh, both the game master and I hadn't read the last two books. And so every time this guy comes to the game night, he's like, have you guys read it yet? Have you read it yet? Because he really wants to talk to us about it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: we still haven't read them. And uh, I even saw him a couple days ago because I'm going to I'm gonna pet sit for him while he's out. And uh, I go over and and he's like – I asked him if he'd seen Ahsoka because he's a Star Wars fan. He's like, no, I haven't seen Ahsoka. I said, it's okay. I still haven't read those two books. So yeah, good.
1: Yeah, like even We're trade. I had the exact same relationship, much to the Husbeast's frustration with Firefly for a long time, where I just would not watch the last two episodes of that single weirdly disjointed season of Firefly because like then it would be over. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And he was like, honey, it's already over. It's it's been over for like for like 15 years. Like it's very You're very to over. You tell him to shut up. And so, and so we no finally lie. it was when Corwin wanted to see Firefly. It was finally when I saw the last two episodes of it. And then of course we had to watch uh, the Serenity movie, which wow, if I thought I didn't want to see the last two episodes of um of Firefly, I really didn't want to see that movie. Um so yeah. Yeah, you mentioned anyway. you
2: mentioned Corwin by curious coincidence. That's the name of my German Shepherd Husky mix. What is Corwin oh. the, hub, the hubby there?
1: Uh, no, no. Um, Corwin is my son. Uh, uh. The, the, my my husband is David. Uh, my daughter is Deirdre. And um, if you kind of follow back and so, you see the look on your face, there you see what I we see what we did. Um, my husband and I met each other in high school uh, because we were. In that particular clique of students who were all wired to the same geekdoms um, and in also that particular clique of students who were like the only people who played tabletop role-playing games. Um, And there was a student who was a couple years older than us uh, who wanted to run an amber diceless RPG game. And uh, the only hitch was no one else in this particular nerd clique had read Zelazny's books. And he was like, welp, go read them. And so, like, we ended up meeting because uh, we were we were in this friend group where like everybody had been assigned the same book homework. Uh, essentially. And so we, we met because we were reading Zelazny at the same time as one another um, and also happened to be reading a lot of other similar things, like Elfquest and whatnot at that time. And uh, one thing leads to another and years down the road and all of that. And, oh, look, we're married and, oh, oh look, there's a kid. And so it's fairly obvious what the kids' names need to be. That's,
2: um, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. So, and I, I guess it's somewhat similar to the the whole, like the idea of finishing and like the, the, the pains of finishing. Of course, we lost Roger Zelazny unexpectedly and, and far sooner, I think, than anybody had expected to quite some time ago in 95. And, um, I remember a few years after that reading the novel Donnerjack, uh, which was at the time billed as like his final novel where he had, he had died midway through the writing process. But because he had been so very ill for so very long prior to that, um, he had been working with someone I forget who Jane um, Lindsgold, I believe. You know, Jane Lindsgold worked with him on Lord Demon. This was someone else. Oh, really? Okay. Someone else, yeah. Someone else worked on Donner Jack. I'll have to I'll have to Google that. But anyway, hmm. he was working with not Jane Lindsgold on Donner Jack, and um, that person ended up taking the book to completion, and it was you know published with both their names on it and i got to say i i swear that to this day i can turn to the page and to the paragraph and i'm like here's where roger died
2: oh wow there's and just I, like, a, there's just, just a tonal just, shift there huh
1: there is just something fundamental to like having read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of the man's work and like invested in it in the way that i did that i'm like this it's not him anymore like i can just tell it's just not him here um and so yeah i guess some some things just kind of get inside your bones so i so why Sword and Sorcery in your bones, Howard? How'd it get there? Well, <laughs> e- e- <laughs> sounds painful, but you know, Yeah,
2: well, I, I, started, out as, I started out in the seventies uh, watching Star Trek reruns because, uh, it it was the coolest speculative fiction on TV. And I loved the original series uh, ever since, but, uh, I started uh, tabletop role-playing and of course there was appendix in at the background and, uh, and, um, I took Appendix N to the library and the used bookstore, and most of the recommendations it, weren't there except for the original Chronicles of Amber and mm-hmm. um, one of Liber's Lankmar books, which purely by accident, I, I I got the best one because that was the only one the used bookstore had. And man, I, I fell in love with it. And um, I mean – I guess the Chronicles of Amber is a little bit of an edge case. If it's strictly defined, if you define sword and sorcery strictly as Fritz Leiber would have had it um, defined, but it certainly has many of the elements. And I just, I just uh, fell in love with that, um, with the feel of, th- and the drive, and the the sheer fun of it. Yeah. And I, I've been I've been there ever since, in one way or another. I mean, I also love historical swashbucklers, but those, those had a huge influence on Robert E. Howard, who uh, really right, instigated yeah. the whole thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. My um, The school where I teach, I teach a speculative fiction studies class uh, every spring, which I'm super lucky to be able to do. And one of my colleagues, uh, if if the class is in big enough demand that I can't handle all the sections myself, will we'll often teach the other sections. And he uh, teaches A Princess of Mars um, as one of his sort of like uh, anchor texts to, to start the class with. And it's been really interesting talking with him over the years about how students today who were like 16 to 18 years old react to that particular type of storytelling in that particular sort of setting. and he, he kind of sells it as a captivity narrative um, and just sort of this this like ex, this machismo fueled version of the captivity narrative. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, it is sort of interesting how so much, if you were to kind of create, like, I don't know, an evolutionary tree as it were, of what speculative fiction is, how much the kind of structure of it branches off of these sorts of shared common roots, you know, even whether it's individual authors or like broadly speaking, certain genres that we might try and like house those authors. And I don't think a lot of people would have thought of Star Trek as having been influenced by sword and sorcery, but like (laughs) take one quick glance at those sets in the, the, the original series and... How could it not be? I mean, it's like the, the blue painted girl of the week swanning over um Kirk and and you know weird buckler wearing tabard wearing space sword wielding folks doing whatever. I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that
2: one, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I guess <laughs> I'm more interested in the um the hardboiled connection because yeah. The original Sword and Sorcerer had a, a real hard-boiled feel. And I don't mean to suggest that people were slouching around in trench coats and fedoras, but just the feel of the prose, sort of a, mm-hmm. a more blue-collar approach to uh, uh, storytelling rather than the refined drawing room approach of older mysteries, right? And yeah. um, th- the original Star Trek was written and edited and performed to some extent either by veterans of World War II or people who'd been alive during World War II. And the sense of uh, sort of duty, uh, loyalty to the crew and to the, the greater enterprise, no pun intended, uh, mm-hmm. is, is embedded in those episodes. Um, mm-hmm. But a real hard-boiled tone of, of responsibility and um, – mm-hmm. uh, gosh, words are failing me.
1: I mean, of course, this is the sort of speculative – Tone that the Greatest Generation would choose to adopt. This sort of vision of like we have, we have fought terrible battles in the world of our past in order to achieve a better future, and right. like this is what that better future looks like. And it's worth, it's worth swearing yourself to a prime directive for. It's worth, it's worth serving. It's worth exploring for. Sure. It's worth all of these things. Sure.
2: And of course, that part isn't in the Sword and Sorcery, but it's. I think mm-hmm. it's. I think it's kind of because I loved so much Star Trek, it, it's sort of in my sword and sorcery. I mean, I, um, not so you look at <laughs> you look at some of the old sword and sorcery, and there's some stuff. Well, I draw inspiration from it. I don't want to carry forward like the suspect racism and sexism. I, I want to leave that behind, right? Yeah. Um, I have uh, strong female characters, and while there are indeed in classic sword and sorcery more strong female characters than might be suspected. If you look at some of the uh, clonin stuff and I, I say clonin, not Conan um, mm-hmm. uh, there's not nearly as many as there probably should have been. And uh, I want uh, female readers to find characters that they uh, can relate mm-hmm. to, you know?
1: Yeah. 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 So I, you're actually I feel like this is a this is an ideal moment for us to do one of our patrons a service here so we have a we have a patreon like so many different enterprises and podcasts and things do and one of our patrons uh Todd has been working for a long time uh on his writing and sort of developing um developing his story craft and he had an interesting question for me a while back that I didn't have a good answer for so maybe you're our guy uh Howard maybe <laughs> maybe you're the I'll try. Who, yeah, but he he was he's was very interested in and had been reading a lot of sword and sorcery and he had floated the question to me and to Patrick of like how is it possible or how does one write sword and sorcery so that it excises or turns away from exactly those sorts of things that you were talking about the kind of um, boiled-in xenophobia or racism or sexism that if we look back at like the labors and so on, it's it's there, and we have to contend with it.
2: I think that it's uh, very easy to do. Uh, there's an entire modern generation of writers who are doing it, and I've been doing it for years. Uh, you just <laughs> you create uh, characters who aren't those things. <laughs> 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 it, it, so that's 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 not. That's not the driving impulse of sword and sorcery. I mean, it can be if that's what you're fixated on. Then you're enjoying it for the, for very different reasons than I, than I am. I like the uh, the fast pace. I like the the heroes who don't have an arc where they begin as lowly schlubs and slowly realize that they're uh, destined for greatness. Uh, yeah. In in sword and sorcery, the characters are already competent and accomplished. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the wild world building. I like the. Um, uh, the fast pace. Uh, I like the surprises, and none of those are related to either sexism or racism. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, so- I'm thinking about the uh, almost a similar question was posed to uh, Kevin Hearn when he came to Colorado and went to the and was a like a guest of honor at the uh, Pikes Peak Writers Conference. And, and, and he, he, you know, he, he just basically said the same thing Howard did, like, just don't write those things. Like you can, you can write an epic fantasy, you can write a fantasy, you can write all these things that, that where there is, there's no slavery in the world. Yeah. Right. If you don't want slavery, then there's no slavery. You you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to write to the expectations of, of like other people thinking that, that. The only way that this can be X, Y, Z thing is if this is in it.
2: Oh, right, sure. no, have to do or, that. Or, or the characters can be having a problem with these things. I mean, my character is explicitly freeing people from slavery, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, it, so rather than embracing or celebrating the, the problematic aspects, you can recognize them and mm-hmm. try to find new ways to address them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and this is something I think that whether you're a writer or a reader or a teacher or whatever, we all find ourselves, at least if we're thoughtful about the the stories that we consume, we all find ourselves contending with to some extent, like, how do I, how do I deal with a text that has some kind of merit to it, but also distinctly has problems? And, you know, that, that there is the option of sort of air quote canceling things and just sort of shuffling them off, um, into the dustbin of, of consideration. But, you know, I think we also kind of have an obligation to think about how do we, how do we approach things that represent a different way of envisioning the world than what we feel is, is righteous and productive? Um, how do we approach those things so that we can think more carefully about the world that we're living in and about the stories that we tell and about the choices that we make and all of those sorts of things. Um, and I think that, you know, brings us back to what you were talking about a moment ago, Patrick, that you don't have to write worlds that contain things that you find objectionable. And that now I think it's a question of like feeling empowered as creators to shape worlds that once you've had that thoughtful conversation with yourself about like, these are not places that I want to go or need to go or that that there's benefit in going to. You can shape your world so that those things don't become part of it. Um yeah, yeah I think a great example,
0: th- I think I think a yeah. great example of that is actually Gail Simone. Okay. So, yeah. so Gail Simone was a massive fan of Red Sonja. She always wanted to write mm-hmm. Red Sonja. And when she finally got the opportunity to write Red Sonja for comic books, she changed Red Sonja's origin.
1: Mm mm-hmm. Mhm.
0: Right, mm-hmm. because the uh, the 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 previous one was you know uh, she gained her power through being raped,
2: Ugh.
0: and so Ugh. so they, they so red so that was Red Sonia's yeah. thing, right? And and so Gail Simone gets the character completely changes it, changes how that all happened, how she gets her power, how you know mm-hmm. everything that drives her and motivates her, and 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 just does it the way that she's always wanted it, and. St- you still get this amazing
2: character, right? Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You, and, and so it that, proves that's, that's you can totally do it. You can no, totally I'm, do it.
2: That, that's great. I mean, what she did is great. Uh, that's that's a terrible origin. You know that um, that wasn't Robert Howard's uh, first uh, – he didn't really have Red Sonja as the comics depictor. That's that's a comic invention. He had a Sonja sure. of Rogatane from a historical um, that he wrote – and she did not mm-hmm. wear a chainmail bikini, and she did not have a secret origin where her power came from being <laughs> raped. So, it's and not that's the weird. other
0: thing she cha- she changed the armor. Yeah. She changed the armor did too. She? Yeah.
2: So yeah. I mean, yeah. there's all sorts of things you could say about Robert E. Howard, but he didn't. That wasn't his.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's people people taking bits and pieces of of his creative legacy and kind of yeah, as as one tends to do. I do think that one of the more absurd arguments that we encounter, particularly when talking about fantasy storytelling, is the argument that some readers will pose a bit like, well, you wouldn't have a, a woman doing this or you wouldn't have a person from this background doing this because back then that didn't happen Or uh, It's this all imaginary. Yeah. Then, you'd be like There is no back then. I feel like this world is called blarble Skart and it has four sons. i would be like, it has no back then. It has it has what I made it up in the shower. Like there's, there's no, what? Um, so there is a sort of interesting confusion. I think that we come into where. Well, I despise and I, and I, that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many,
2: so there's lots of uh, famous ancient cultures where there were women warriors who, who kicked on mm-hmm. all kinds of butt. And so mm-hmm. I, I do, my character comes from a little bit of a Carthage analog, although it's, it's not a complete analog, but someone could say, Oh, his culture had some, a prominent women warrior core, and they could argue, mm-hmm. "Well, that's not true. Carthage didn't." I'm like, "Yeah, but it's not actually Carthage." So, yeah, um, fully yeah. on you. I'm doing what I yeah. want.
0: <laughs> yeah, I yeah. still remember. I, I remember sitting on a panel at a convention, and and one of the one of the panelists is sitting there. He's like, "This is the only way to write this. This is how you have to do it." Blah blah. I'm just sitting there, like, "No, it's not." <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's wrong <laughs> and,
0: and, and, and I, I, I honestly I might be mixing up my memories but I want to say that like this was a panel where Cannoli Joe was sitting in the audience and I'm sitting there and Cannoli Joe starts laughing because of my expression yeah,
1: you're running commentary
0: Talking, I'm not saying a thing like at first I didn't say anything and Joe's just like laughing and then no just your face is going on like, a journey
2: yeah,
0: I think I think he even said something like I think Patrick disagrees <laughs> yeah. And yes, yeah. Patrick disagreed.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, okay. Sorry, I
0: think Howard, I- we, sorry, Howard we, we we tend to sprinkle in uh, some of our patron people and Canoli Joe is one of them. Uh, he's yes. one of our patrons in Chicago. Uh, yeah. But I will say this, when it comes to sprinkling in things from Todd, uh, Tracy, you didn't clear that through me. So Todd, you owe me like five bucks.
1: Oh, okay. That's that's fair. Yeah. So Possibly I'm real sorry about that, Todd. I'll get you back. Just give me like your Zell or something, and we'll, we'll take care of that. It'll be cool. Um, yeah. So <laughs> what I, I was gonna say. It. Yeah, yeah. Hedrick knows this because we've talked about it a few times before. But um, I mean, we've talked about my kids a billion times before. But I have a 16 year old son and now a 12 year old daughter. She she's turned for the great change of becoming 12, the final year of not being a teenager, uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the things that we've been doing with them since forever, uh, because we are both nerd folk parents, is kind of like, here is your nerd culture, child. Like, come watch the nerd things. Come do the nerd things with us. And for the most part, they've been very agreeable about their nerd training. Um, you know, and they, they are very different kinds of kids. Uh, and one thing that's been happening lately, which has been exciting for us is my son Corwin has gotten very into a sort of like, I want to know things about X, like he'll pick a genre or he'll pick a period of filmmaking or something. And he's like, I want to, I want to do a deep dive here and see all the things or read all the stuff or know all the stuff about whatever. Um, so for a particular, for a particularly kind, like omnivorous, Geek kid, like I have in my Corwin here. What do you suppose is the starter pack of like? Here, kid, try some sword and sorcery stuff. Particularly if we're looking to like avoid garbage.
2: Avoid garbage. Well, avoid garbage. you know that uh, sword and sorcery has pulpy origins, so mm-hmm. um, it depends on what how you define garbage. But since we're sure. all since we're all friendly nerds here, uh, you really. Do you have some Lord Dunsany around the house? Sure do. So th- some people say maybe the Sword of Wellerin was the first Sword mm-hmm. of Sorcery story. And then, I mean, Carl Edward Wagner talked about how um, you could look back at Aeneas and uh, and Greek myth. But really mm-hmm. the, the originator seems to have been Robert E. Howard, who took it um, and brought it forward in, into the pulpy uh, 30s. And mm-hmm. so I would start with The Coming of Conan. There are three Del Rey collections um, that collect all of the uh, original Conan stories by Robert E. Howard and uh, start with the first one and have him try like The Tower of the Elephant. Oh. Um, it's not the first one written, but it's one of the very best and it's early in Conan's career. And if he likes that, there's a couple of others like uh, Black Colossus and if he enjoys that, you know, then then have at the book. The book's uneven. There's some that are in there that were never published so so that's Howard. He ought to read some uh, Jarel of Joyery by C.L. Moore. And uh, she only wrote, uh, I think, six or seven stories of Jarrell. Uh, mm-hmm. He should read the best Lankmar collection is uh, Swords Against Death. Um, yes. Try, try some of those. And then you have, um, gosh, try some Sword and Planet, and Lee Brackett is the way to go there. Uh, yeah. Have him try uh, The Sword of Rhiannon, or mm-hmm. also published as The Sea Kings of Mars. Or some of the Eric John Stark stories, uh, and then he needs to read some Amaro of Charles Saunders, mm-hmm. uh, and I think I think that ought to get him acquainted with most of it. Although he should probably read some Michael Moorcock, and th- those are the oh, yeah.
1: those the, are Eldrick. the Eldrick of Bone. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
2: Um, those are the foundational uh, grandmothers and grandfathers, and I, I if he's grooving on any of that. The predecessor of many of these is a historical swashbuckler writer named Harold Lamb, uh, and if he wants to look at those, look at a collection I edited called "Wolf of the Steps," uh, okay. and, and those are pretty awesome uh, adventure stories.
1: That's a hell of a starter pack.
0: <laughs> guess,
1: guess what, Corin? You got homework.
0: <laughs> and, and if you if you want a mixtape, what was that? What was that anthology that Lou did? Uh,
2: Oh my God! Uh, I've forgotten what the title of that was. It dark. Um, gosh, who did? Well, a, a, a did Google. With somebody
0: else. Right? A quick
2: Google search will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, I were, yeah, so, if so, I were in my library, I'm, I just look behind me. But I'm yeah. I'm yeah, downstairs yeah. in the basement. So I'm,
0: ta- I'm talking about uh, Lou Anders. Uh, yes, who, who also loves uh, sword and sorcery. He did a he did an anthology uh, eight years ago. Seven years ago, mm-hmm. somewhere around in there, that that would be a mixtape. I mean, it's got a bunch of different people writing a bunch of different stories. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah. I don't remember the name of it though, I'm like Howard. Fair. And I don't. Fair. I, I, I I don't. I don't. I don't Google things. Why? Why would I? I rely on my <laughs> s, my sketchy memory on these things. Like, on. Everybody knows. <laughs> maybe maybe none of us names. will
1: Google things soon because <laughs> you know the Justice Department has a has a class action lawsuit out. Um, so for that, have you, have you heard about that?
0: Uh, no, uh, I should invest
1: to Google that. <laughs> yes, you should invest to Google it. There's a there's a class action lawsuit that. Um, well, no, actually, hang on. It's not a class action lawsuit. That's if it was consumers. This is a antitrust lawsuit that's been brought by the Justice Department against Google, uh, and the premise of it is that Google has an unfair uh, has taken unfair advantage of market share uh, for search purposes, specifically because. The major producers of uh, smartphones and other sorts of portable technology, like your iPads and iPhones and Samsung and, and um, you know Firefox with Mozilla, uh, just as a, as a browser, have signed multibillion dollar yearly contracts that they re-up on the regular with uh, Google to make their, their search of default Google. So if you hop onto Safari and you just type into Safari's browser, uh, you know, the URL window there, you just type in your search. The search that it's activating is Google powered. Yeah. Um, And so they're making the argument that that is that is a example of an antitrust case. Uh I think Um, that's
0: a that's a terrible uh, lawsuit. Because uh, Google, I mean, Google is pretty innocent. I remember, I remember years ago when Google said that they were going to, that uh, they just felt like it was better for all of the consumers in the world uh, if websites uh, were secure and had that mm-hmm. S, you know, instead of HTTP, they had the HTTPS, and they were going to weight searches uh, towards websites that were secure and and had the S for the betterment and safety and security of all you know, users that are on the internet. And then the next day they also launched their, uh, uh, security certificate sales. Uh, it's the darn, I mean, so, they, so, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see lot. any, yeah, I don't see any like ulterior motives there on the, what
1: you mean really to say is they're people. living up to their foundational motto of don't be evil.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I, I, I will also throw I out there, that, you, I don't know. I don't know if you saw it or not, but um, completely unrelated to the lawsuit by the European Union against Apple, uh, that lightning cable thing that they need to use USB C. Uh, The Mm -hmm. new iPhone is going to use USB C, but they they say that it's completely unrelated to the lawsuit. So I believe them too. (laughs) I, I mean, these are these are huge corporations, multi billion dollar corporations. I don't think that they would lie to us anymore then like former presidents of the United States would lie.
1: Wow. Somehow we managed to go to a darker place than slavery <laughs> in, in um, sword and sorcery novels of old. Wow. Okay. Or, or Where's novels the of tr- the present tr- where we, where we <laughs> seek to break the chains. Where's um, the
0: trust
1: Tracy? I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good thing that, that we, we live in the, the simpler world of our, of the fantastical. So whew, we probably need a palate cleanser after that. You feeling the Picks of the Week? I
0: am feeling it. Picks of the Week.
1: <laughs>
0: and, and Howard, it's been a while since you've been here. That is the last holdout of Mr. Anilio is the Picks of the Week. Like we still use his track. for He's like uh, a ghost in the
1: machine uh, at this point, Yeah. Basically. So, Patrick, what's your pick?
0: I have two. It's been a while. So, sure. and no, it's to fine. Get both you got a
1: backload. You got to let it I all did. out, friend. Go
0: ahead. I did. Yeah. I, I, and both of these are documentaries that I recently watched. Um, uh, the first one is, is, was one that I actually I shared the trailer with the patrons a couple of years ago uh, and then promptly forgot about it. And when I was trolling through trying to justify maintaining a streaming service for a little while extra, uh, mm-hmm. I came across this documentary and I was like, oh, shit, I wanted to watch this. Let's watch it. Uh, it's Belushi. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually a Showtime documentary, but now Showtime and Paramount Plus have kind of merged content and you can get some Showtime content as part of your Paramount Plus subscription. And and so uh when I saw that that was on there, I was like, Oh, I wanted to watch that. Let's let's watch it. So I did. Uh and it was it's really good and it talks about uh John Belushi, you know, uh and, and not necessarily like from birth to death, but like it, it goes into a little bit of his childhood, but then really kind of jumps into when he started performing and he got into acting and uh, uh, he met his longtime uh, partner uh, and they started living together. And I don't think she and he ever got married. At least they don't talk about it. But uh, And then it just walks through his entire career from from yeah. uh, his, his early beginnings into going into Second City. And mm-hmm. uh, eventually Saturday Night Live, and then the Blues Brothers, uh, and then movie career, and all that kind of stuff. And it was it was just really, really poignant and good. And it shows a thing that you and I have talked about in the past, which is that 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 point where uh, like mental health and creativity kind of crash together, and you mm-hmm. have someone who can't deal. Yeah. And so, yeah. kind of how they deal is with drugs and mm-hmm. and and alcohol and, and and but it doesn't actually work, and and then they end up, you know, Do unfortunately I? dying. Uh, so that yeah. that's number one. That's on Paramount Plus. Uh, the second one is actually on Netflix, and this is uh, Credence Clearwater Revival at the Royal Albert Hall. Okay. And this is a uh, again, it's not it's not like birth to death it's uh it's birth to royal albert hall so they don't get into the later stuff uh but basically they they it's it's uh it's narrated by jeff bridges and it's talking about you know kind of how the band came together how they started uh becoming a cohesive thing how they found their sound and eventually played royal albert hall and then they actually show that concert. Like, I guess it was recorded, and I don't think it was ever necessarily released. Uh, so they 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 do the entire concert, and uh, it's just it's just again, it's a really good documentary, and it shows you know how that band came to be, the things that influenced them, uh, especially the Beatles, and then kind of how they just kept going back and forth with the Beatles on the charts, uh, and then when the Beatles broke up. Uh, it kind of opened up the world for for CCR uh, to 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 be this huge band, and yeah, it's just really really good stuff. If you if you're into the 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 music and uh, the entertainment factor, Belushi and CCR, those are two great documentaries on two different platforms. So, there's my picks. all right.
1: Thanks, Patrick. Howard, how about you?
2: Oh my goodness, so. You know, normally I'd probably be telling you about some cool old hard-boiled mystery or um, or even Western that I've read from the 1950s or 1960s. I, I love the propulsive momentum and the uh, the characters who just get on with the story rather than standing around whining or, uh, <laughs> or having a long, slow intro of 100 pages before anything interesting happens. But you know what? Um, I have been a tabletop gamer for long years. I've been so busy... Uh, writing for the last few years. I don't get to game at all anymore, but I do still pick up uh, role-playing stuff. And uh, I'm going to hold this up so you two can see. Everyone else will just have to uh, nice. imagine. This is called The Monster Overhaul, and it's by someone who's uh, going under the name Skirples. I'm not really <laughs> sure what a skirpel is, but it's a big, beautiful hardback, and it takes the, uh, the standard monsters and kind of reimagines them uh, with additional details. So, for instance, something as boring as a skeleton, um, on the table where the skeletons are, uh, you have commands that skeletons might have left by the wizard. So, for instance, wait here, kill anyone except for me. What's the skeleton source? Where did they come from? What trinkets did this particular uh, skeleton, what, what were they buried with? Um, what is their particular appearance, uh, etc.? And every every monster is like this. Some of them that aren't, you know, undead and staggering around, they might be, what is the monster doing? Uh, So for instance, an orc might be lighting a cooking fire, arguing over (laughs) loot distribution, telling tales of past victory and future glory. Basically, it is a storytelling resource so that if you're going to be creating an adventure um, or use adapting someone else's and it says that there's an orc there, you no longer, it's not just like, it's not going to feel like a video game where they're just standing around waiting to get uh, slaughtered.
1: Right. I just spawned so that you can hit me.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, and this kind of
2: uh, new look on gaming, I just find it a tremendous story asset. Oh, and I love looking at monster manuals anyway, mm-hmm. uh, especially new ones with interesting creatures. But this one's sort of a re I I'm really taken with it.
1: Nice,
0: nice. We're we're at that time of year where I can ask you this question, Howard. What do you what like you, you like the monsters? What about the mash?
1: Wow! Wow, Patrick Louise, I whatever
2: happened to the Transylvania Twist? I think is. That. <laughs> I wish people could see
0: Tracy's face right now. <laughs> and Tracy, I think you're muted. By the way, okay. <laughs> she knows you. yeah
1: i um i i needed to mute there for a minute <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> It was important it wasn't just because i was typing it was important needed to, like there's two of them now and <laughs> it's new. It's one of them we invited on on purpose you can't just ask him to go away <laughs> like, all right um so my uh my pick of the week has uh, a very different vibe uh, from, from I guess, either of, of the other picks. But, you know, it wouldn't be a me pick if that weren't the case. Uh, my pick is a uh, collection of essays originally all published in The New Yorker called The Matter of Black Lives. And uh, specifically, it's a collection of essays from The New Yorker, all of which are written by... Uh, African-American, Black-identifying, uh, Black diaspora authors about different things ranging from sort of politics and culture uh, to issues of like music and economics and, and personal history and things, uh, starting as far back with like James Baldwin going all the way up to uh, think pieces that have been written in the last couple of years, covering things like uh, George Floyd's murder um, and, and so on. And I've been reading it specifically because I was looking for some materials to bring into a class that I was teaching. But I've also just been reading it, um, sort of browsing from, from one essay to the next as a kind of way of, I don't know, understanding my own life a little bit differently um, I've been looking at things that for me, different pieces that are, that are from moments in my life where I'm like, oh, I was in college when this happened, or this was just a couple years ago, or this happened before I was around, but you know, this happened during my parents' lifetime and I want to read something in there. And it's been a really interesting exercise for me. As a trying to be thoughtful white person uh, to kind of put the perspective of folks who have just lived very different lives from my own and and the historical events that have surrounded their lives in a perspective that I would not have been able to do uh, without them. And some of the pieces are very long and discursive and some of them are very brief and punchy. Um, and they cover everything from, you know, interviews and profiles of rap artists uh, to, you know, issues of mothering and medicine and, um, you know, personal personal employment and experiences with racism and all sorts of things. And so I found The Matter of Black Lives, which is edited by Jelani Cobb and David Remnick, to be just a really great read, uh, fundamentally because of its content, but also because it's a collection of essays, it's extraordinarily browsable. Um, you can kind of pick it up and put it down. You can kind of develop your own relationship with it, reading the pieces in whatever sequence or order you want. Uh, and I highly recommend it. So if you have the opportunity nice. to get it from your library or to find a copy of it uh, by some other means, I would do it. Very cool.
2: Very All right. nice.
1: So... This has been uh, this has been a real journey. I've gone to a lot of a lot of funky places <laughs> here in the course of our in the course of our not quite an hour with you, Howard. And we want to make sure that people have the chance to follow up with Lord of a Shattered Land, and also to to get to know the other books um, that are part of the work that you've done. Hopefully, they'll have a chance to read Lord of a Shattered Land before its uh, its brother joins it very soon in October. So, where can people find find it, find you, and all your other cool stuff?
2: Well, uh, Lord of the Shattered Land ought to be in your Barnes & Noble if it's not a uh, demand that it should be. And uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's pretty widely distributed, but I guess you know most books, unless you're, I don't know, uh, George Martin or Sanderson mm-hmm. aren't in every Barnes Noble. Anyway, uh, also Amazon, also Chapters, also Indigo, also all kinds of independent bookstores. And of course, uh, the ubiquitous Amazon. Uh, and you can find me at um howard.andrew.jones or howardandrewjones.1 at facebook whatever those stupid things are i'm also on i'm also on twix right at uh yes. at at howardandrewjohn uh since there wasn't room for es but i i i've i've never liked twitter or x or whatever it is so i i'm not on there much and yeah. I, I, I yeah I maintain yeah. a website at howardandrewjones.com, but honestly um, I' I have a lot of stuff to write so I'm usually yeah. just <laughs> I'm usually just writing. I'm not wandering about much.
1: Well we'll let the we'll let the world of Goodreads help people find their way to you and uh, you can take care of just generating that content.
2: Thank you very much.
1: All right well thanks for being with us, Howard.
2: It's been a pleasure.
0: All good things. Here we are, at the end again. But there's some stuff you should probably know before you go. First, consider heading over to beyondthetrope.com and checking out their podcast. It's a lot of fun. Giles and Michelle have been around for nearly a decade now, I think. Having fun chats with writers, artists, actors, and more. They put out a new episode every Tuesday and have something like 430 overall in the can, I think, as of this recording. It might be 431, I don't know. But that means there's plenty there for you to dive into. Second, if you liked this episode of The Functional Nerds, consider giving us a couple of stars on your favorite podcast platform or posting about this episode or any of our episodes on your favorite social media platform. Tell your friends about us. Have them come over. We would really appreciate that part. If you buy a book mentioned on the podcast, let us know on social media. Tag us. Tag the author. That's always so much fun, and it really, really drives home that we help sell books every once in a while. Now, if you really, really, really enjoyed this episode, you could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and give us a couple of bucks. I mean, that helps to keep the lights on. We like that. It's kind of hard to podcast in the dark. You can get access to some cool stuff like a pretty engaged and vibrant super secret Facebook group, a monthly virtual hangout, or even an extra episode it's called the just us episode of the podcast and it's exclusively at this point for our patreon backers so if you just want to hear tracy and i talk about stuff that might be where you need to go mr carpiers you got it right how about that yeah you can call me cannoli joe if you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh Squirrel!
1: Oh, for God's sake,
0: Patrick Louise! <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast?
1: <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal.
0: <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused
1: with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff.
0: My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.